0: Welcome to another episode of Imperfect Leaders. We're the first and only podcast that invites the most powerful leaders in the country and asks them to be totally vulnerable and share their flaws, their imperfections, and of course, their wisdom. Our goal isn't to embarrass guests, rather it's to inspire our listeners to become more self-aware and to get an early start developing the exact leadership skills valued by the country's most admired organizations. If you like the show, we invite you to subscribe for free at www.imperfectleaders.com. And until then, sit back and enjoy the show. When I'm fortunate enough to have a living legend on the show, like today's guest, Alan Patrykhoff, literally an icon who succeeded in everything, it seems like, for the last 50 or 60 years, I get excited. And I listened carefully to his advice, and even more so, I love his stories. Hopefully, you will too. Although, a fair warning even though I asked him to share investing secrets, he was much more excited talking about music and politics and his next venture, Primetime Partners, than talking about the technical side of finance. I guess I don't blame him. With that, I hope you enjoy the show. Well, Alan, welcome. I'm I'm not a uh, particularly religious guy, but as I was just saying, I remember vividly growing up as a little Jewish boy in Kentucky and there weren't a ton of Jews back then in the deep South. Uh, but I went to temple on the high holidays and I remember my rabbi once said, life is short. How many people will remember you when you pass away? Not because you're famous or a celebrity, but because you touched their lives. Alan, you, you touched countless lives for more than five or six decades now. And I think every single one of us has so much to learn from you about business and venture capital, music, politics, and art life in general. So I'm thrilled you wrote this book. And like I was saying, this book, No Red Lights, um, I was reading it in the park and read it from cover to cover. I couldn't put it down, uh, amazing practical lessons, but it's ridiculously entertaining too. Um, so let me start with the question. The obvious question, why'd you write this book?
1: Uh, it's really the, most important basic question. So I'm glad we're starting out that's why I wrote this for a bifurcated audience. Uh, I wanted on the one hand to inspire younger people to not get stuck in one trajectory and whether it's finance or real estate or law or whatever, and to think more broadly about the opportunities that may come and they just don't see them because they're not curious, because they don't follow up, because it's just not their inclination. And so opportunities pass them by, whether it's, as you've said, whether it's in the theater or whether it's in politics uh, or uh, whether it's some totally out of the box opportunity. And so I wanted to be very encouraging, but certainly uh, uh, philanthropically, and to not just keep putting it aside, but really make it part of their basic life. So that's one part. The other group I wanted to address, and it's tough to address both, uh, although I have to say I've gotten enough feedback now from people who've read the book that I I honestly think I accomplished it with, uh, uh, and that is I wanted to uh, be encouraging to people at the later stages of their life to say, don't put your book down. Don't check out. Don't close the, the book on life and say, well, you know, I built a company or I had a job or, and I'm going into retirement and I'm going to Florida. I'm going to fly fish. I'm going to play golf, but rather think that, uh, as I do at the age today of 87, uh, I'm going to live to 114. That's 27 more years. But if you're a traditional person, I just Started my third business. But if you're a person, as most are, that age 60 are either being forced into retirement or there comes a natural stage where they say, you know, I've been doing this for 20 or 30 years, uh, uh, I've had enough. I want to encourage them if they will accept my 114, that they probably still have half their life to go. And uh, there are lots of things they can do. First and foremost, if they loved what they did, they could go back in the same business, start all over again with the best Rolodex, probably more man money in their hand than they had originally, uh, with enormous contact, with a lot of wisdom, uh, attract people from their former life, and do it all over again. And uh, I'm fashioning that off of my own life, which uh, built a business starting out after a working career, starting out at age 30, I can't remember, 34, 36, building a a business from nothing into a very behemoth really today. Uh, and, uh, then taking three years to do other things in the international world, uh, on a pro bono basis for the government, and then decided to start a second business at age 72, Uh, having built that up now, Uh, at age 85, decided I wanted to start a third one. And I turned each of these other businesses over to the people who I brought in. And uh, now I'm deep into a third career at age 87, and I've got 27 years to go. And uh, I started with a two years ago with a 10 year partnership. So uh, people have to obviously believe I'm gonna be here in 95 if they wanted to invest with me and i intend probably before the end of this year or next year to do fund two of my latest idea uh which will mean you know they got to believe i'm going to be here to 97 which i will well i I believe it
0: and i'm going to get to those things but tell me you, you talked about curiosity and you know trying new things what did you learn if anything from writing this book is it possible to learn something about yourself, or do you already know everything there is to know at 87? Uh, I don't think I knew everything, but I,
1: I, I, I wrote the book in longhand on a yellow line, uh, pay, pad, uh, free associating and just putting down what I remembered. And then, uh, then went through a process of research and refining what I had done to try to. Recall facts. So what I learned is I went back to some old facts and reinforced the the actual facts in my mind that may have been hazy, uh, and I had a chance to reconnect with some people from the past. And writing the book has resulted in a lot of people from earlier in my life who reconnected. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'd say that's been a a positive aspect, but. Uh, I didn't discover anything, uh, other than a couple of things I had forgotten to put in there, mm-hmm. uh, but not nothing critical. Let me take you way back.
0: Um, did you grow back? Uh, did you grow up in Manhattan? I mean, tell me what that was
1: like as a kid growing up in Manhattan. It was a lot different back then. Yeah, well, I grew up in Manhattan as a kid on the west side in a, a neighborhood. And, uh, it was will let's say this way today if if there's a snowfall in New York even if it's a it's a snowstorm uh, or a deluge of two feet of snow probably within three days it's gone and you never know it was there when I grew up if a stove if you had a snowstorm your car was buried in under snow for the entire winter unless you decided to, uh, as my father did once or twice to, to, us to get out there and shovel it out. Uh, it was a time when you played in the streets. It was a time when it was a very neighborhood type of, of environment. Uh, I think that today uh, a lot of the things that we had in those days are gone. A lot of the neighborhood feeling is gone in Manhattan. I, I can't speak for other areas. and. Uh, uh, i think about this simple uh, neighborhood down home friendliness is probably to somewhere i mean at that time you knew the local grocer by name you knew the the delicatessen you knew the druggist you knew the the, the stationery store i don't think that's that, that's common you knew your neighbors uh you know there was a book about 10 years ago which is like I don't say my Bible, but a Bible a book I really admired a lot mm-hmm. uh, by a guy named Robert Putnam called "Bowling Alone," and it was all about, you know, bridge clubs, uh, school dances, uh, synagogue or church dances, uh, you know, playing pickup ball uh, in a team. Uh, a lot of that has gone away and, and and as he says bowling alone you know your bowling league concept it still exists uh but it, we don't we don't have as much of that as we did in those days what about your parents What what were they like and what kind of
0: influence did they have as you were growing up as you know a little boy
1: well, my father had grown up very poor as an immigrant and living in a, in a, with a, with 16 people in a house in Ohio, uh, and had it tough growing up and had a, as he, he was an orphan when he came over here. So he was somewhat bitter about his growing up, and he certainly didn't have a silver spoon and, uh, my mother and he was tough. My mother was also an immigrant, but she had it somewhat better. It would, with the family unit and, uh, did not have that same bitterness about her childhood. And she was a much sweeter person. Uh, I, you know, I get asked that often as we all do about what influence our parents had. I don't think my parents honestly had a big impact on my life, <laughs> except that, I guess you would say, since I was born at a time around the depression. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't say I specifically remember suffering from the depression. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say that, uh, I learned to be frugal, careful, not, uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't drive it. I didn't go in a taxi till I was out of college. I never was in a plane till I was out of college. So I, uh, uh, you know, we went on vacation. It was all by car. So it was a different kind of lifestyle. And, uh, you know, that's somewhat ingrained in me today of, of, of being simple in terms of my life approach. So you
0: talk about, um, being simple and frugal, but I also remember in your book, you spoke a lot about, you know, curiosity and integrity. Where, where did these core values come from and have they stayed with you your whole life? Uh,
1: I think you're, hopefully, uh, it would be nice if if you could develop a curiosity. I think it's either your nature or it's not your nature. Do you think you're born um, with it? Uh, no, I, no one taught me to be curious. Uh, and uh, I always give a very simple explanation to any person talking about curiosity or venture capital. I always say the same illustration. I'd say if you're the kind of person who sits at a dinner table and you look at your plate, you say, wow, this is an incredible design and you turn it over and to see where it came from. That's like the most basic curiosity you could have. I don't know about you, but I've done that on many occasions. And that's why I started Even when you were a kid. Well, not, I can't say as a kid now that, but, but early on, mm-hmm. I mean, I use that as an illustration, I don't let's not be too literal, but I'm saying, however it is, you know, curious how something's made curious where this road goes curious yeah. uh how uh, this this computer works it wasn't a computer it would have been a radio or something uh in those days but i think you either are have those instincts or you don't right? so,
0: so how did this kid on the west side of new york end up at ohio state
1: uh it was a total accident as you have read in the book I really didn't intend to go there i really had high hopes for going to princeton which i did not get into and then i had uh as a fullback, uh had decided to go to brandeis but you got a little freaked out when you went to visit brandeis or something it was so early on brandeis was a different kind of school than it is today which is one of the, the very successful prominent school uh, I would have been proud to have been a graduate there. But uh, I just felt, I, was, I got nervous. So I I pasted over a label for Ohio State because my father would, had been brought up in Middletown, Ohio. I had had some cousins out there. I wanted to get out of the New York scene. That's why I didn't want to go to Columbia or, or Wharton because a lot of people I knew were going there. I just wanted to get away mm-hmm. and Ohio State had been my, I, I can't weigh down the ladder of my choice, but, uh, I ended up spending three, uh, fun years out there. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily live in Columbus again. Uh, but you liked it when you were there. Yeah,
0: and so, how'd you, so, so your first job, was it Nason Thomas? How did, how did you get this job? I mean, weren't those, weren't those kinds of firms, Recruiting
1: at the IBS and not really banging down doors in Columbus. Yeah, and probably everybody was. Uh, yeah, no, I got it by shoe, you know wearing out shoe leather and just knocking on enough doors that I uh, was lucky enough to get a a very very good job with a very prestigious firm. And to this day, I don't know how why they hired me because they had their choice. But uh, they, it wasn't a bad choice for them, and it certainly wasn't a bad choice for me.
0: Why do you think they hired you? Well, first of all, how'd you get the chutzpah to go knocking on doors when you
1: weren't invited? And what do you think they saw in you? You want to get a job. I mean, you know, getting a job is a job. I tell this to young people every week. I can't say every day. And a uh, job. You got You know, today it's it. In those days, it was writing letters, it was making phone calls. Today it's you know, sending emails out, going on LinkedIn, and hustling. Uh, And uh, I, you know, there was no other way. There were no headhunters looking for young guys at that time. And I just decided I want to be on Wall Street. So if you want to be on Wall Street, I started looking for jobs on Wall Street. Literally the Wall Wall Street. Right. And what do you think you,
0: um, what kind of business and life lessons did you learn at that job, but in
1: general, early in your career? Well, I think it was the basics of investing. I, I learned there as I did in all the jobs I had before I started the venture business, all, all the, in the venture business, I unlearned everything I'd learned. What do you mean? So let, let's start with the base. What do you mean by the basics of investing? How to, how to analyze a company, how to, you know, do a discounted cash flow how to do a spreadsheet analysis, uh, uh, how to think about, uh, intrinsic
0: value, free cash flow, uh, mm-hmm. developing a business, uh, that will sustain itself. Mm-hmm. And, and so the world has obviously changed a lot since when you got your first job, what advice though, do you have from this collective wisdom over 50, 60 years, for new people that are about to get out of school and the world just seems so big and confusing and complex and who knows when the job market is going to change, you know, it's, they've been in a lot of high demand, but as you know, it hasn't always been like that. I mean, what, how, what philosophy should they have as they look to start their
1: career? I don't think you could do what I did. Cause I think you can't get access inside a building past the, the concierge down at the main floor. So that, that is totally precluded. Uh, probably... What,
0: what about the hustle? You talked about like hustle and, you know, going and knocking down doors. Yes, you can't do it in person, but you don't have to necessarily, you know, take the job that's right in front of you. You could be a little bit more tenacious and, you know,
1: looking under corners and trying things out that they hadn't thought of before. Yeah, I think you gotta... Oh, I would definitely urge anyone was looking for a job
2: to try to find a place where there are people who they can learn something from.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, was that something that you, did you learn a lot in that, for the very first job? Absolutely. Absolutely. And the, you know, Ragnar Ness was a great mentor. David Rosenberg was Ramsey Wilson, and they were very high quality individuals. And, uh, uh it, that combination plus the firm's reputation was a great, platform to go on to another job.
0: And and you were about to say earlier that when you got into venture capital, you had to unlearn all of those things that you had learned. What did you mean by that? Well,
1: what I was working on was analysis of public securities, which you had all the factors I just mentioned. When you go into venture, you're really, there's more instinct. There's more pattern recognition.
2: There's more related to uh, uh, looking at the
1: market, total market addressed, what the opportunity is for growth in that market and penetration, uh, what kind of team one has, and your your the financials uh, are less important. And uh, fortunately or unfortunately, most venture-backed companies. lose money for a long time. So you can't apply, apply traditional metrics. You have to extrapolate to a theoretical point in time when they will be making
2: money and, and determine what your exit might be. And this kind of
1: present value might be. What? So we all know, Alan, that you're a legendary
0: investor. Why did you decide to leave this relatively safe job on wall street to do something totally new that you hadn't done before? What
1: well, do you mean when I started my firm? Yes. Because up until then, I just think I had four different jobs. And uh, while they weren't the same, they were
2: all involved in some way of analyzing public, public companies for one purpose or
1: another. Mm-hmm. Uh, why I did it? Because I got the bug. Uh, I, had, I had become very involved with some of the private companies in the last company's portfolio. And found that it was much more satisfying to be involved with companies where I could help really understand what the predictive outcomes would be, rather than uh, uh, you know being in the public market where you're subject to the winds of the psychology of an investor. And one day this they they think the Ukraine is going to crash and the, and the stock goes down. The next day they think Ukraine's Going to win, and the stock goes up. And the third day, something else happens, and, and, and you really have no control over it. Whereas with a private company, I, put, I have control, more control, more ability to influence the outcome. So I, that's where my I, I, I focus my attention. You must have a huge line, and have always had
0: a huge line of entrepreneurs trying to get funding. What do you look for in companies
1: that you've you know funded? Well, I look for a good team. That's first and foremost. That's the people count more than anything else. I look for a total address market that's big enough so that you don't have to get you know twenty percent of the market to succeed. Uh, I look for places where uh, there is a, an exit potential identified of how ultimately to sell, because most venture back companies get sold. Uh, I look for the theoretical money mechanics, you know, what, how the money goes in and out and whether this company can develop a profit and have a sustainable growth rate and, uh, I'm prepared to invest in a following. You, uh, you must have some interesting stories.
0: Can you, would you mind sharing a story or two of some of the more interesting companies that you've
1: invested in over the years? Uh, It's hard to pick out companies. I mean, I've had a lot of companies. My uh, first company in the the, uh, medical electronics field was very interesting, Datascope Corporation. uh, Audible was a very interesting investment for me, uh, which I was deeply involved in. Mm -hmm. Uh, The the cellular investment I made out of the first lottery in in 1981 or 82 was very exciting in terms of- uh, no, no, it was, uh, CCI. Oh, then when I got in, it was a radio and television company. It became a cellular company. What was that first one you mentioned? Why
0: was that so interesting? The data scope?
1: Well, it was the first deal I did and, uh, backing a very successful entrepreneur in the metal the electronics business with a product that was pretty unique. Hmm. And it's not always success, right? I mean, it's
0: actually mostly failure. What What about Kingston and Adam labs? What What, what did you learn from those investments? Uh, well, I did
1: learn, I learned a lot from those two investments. I learned a lot in Adam's lab. I learned that if you have a few back something that has many components to it and each one of those components has been done Previously, which would give you a lot of confidence, if they haven't been done together, be careful mm. just being just being a, a you know a chip and not thinking about the whole television set uh, will lead you to, they can lead you to the wrong place. Uh, in terms of Kingston, uh, I learned a very simple lesson. Also, there is that. That was a company that had been in business for many years, very profitable, very well known, controlled area of upstate New York, uh, where all the restaurants and everyone professional went to there and I I researched it. What I didn't realize is that the group I was backing, which was a management team, which wanted to buy it back because it was so successful, that there was a 45 day period in which they went out of business and stopped selling and the plant closed and 45 days later they reopened. And I didn't realize that in that interim period, people didn't stop eating meat. They found a way, alternative sources. And once they found alternative sources, it was very hard to get them to go back where they were where we assumed that they would automatically pick everything up. It was, we were very much mistaken. You, you wrote once the, uh, or you wrote in the book that,
0: uh, that you wrote a heartfelt note to one of your entrepreneurs who violated a no shop clause. What, what happened? I mean, why did he do that? How did you
1: handle that situation? Well, as you saw that I, I felt, I waited very strongly to the company and said, we had a moral obligation and actually I thought a legal obligation, but I was really more concerned with the moral that I just felt, you know, if you made a deal with someone, you stick to it, even if you have some better opportunity, dances in front of you. And, uh, you know, I try to, to practice that in my life and being honorable. And uh, if I give a commitment to someone, they can rely on it. If I don't give a commitment, you know, there are lots of people who in the venture business in particular who say, pencil me in. Uh, I only operate with a pen. So i would be crazy not to ask you about how the industry
0: has changed over the last 30, 40, 50 years. What, how has it changed?
1: Oh, well, when I came into it, there wasn't an industry. It was a, you know, a bunch of ragtag firms you know, starting out with an idea like mine of, uh, getting people involved in private investments today, it is a, it is a huge business with thousands of firms and more starting every day.
0: And, uh, uh, capital under management is, is in the billions, if not in the trillion, up to a trillion. So, So, so it's gotten way more competitive. What's your pitch to founders
1: that are in high demand by your competitors? Well, I don't say it's necessarily competitive because sometimes you work on a proprietary basis, but, uh, I'd say let's work together rather than at at odds. Let's finance this company. And I, one of the things I practice is I don't care about board seats and every other venture capitalist wants a board seat. So why don't you care? because I realized that most venture investments are minority investments and we don't have control. Do you think that, that some of the other firms are making mistakes by wanting a board seat? Yeah. But well, every venture capitalist wants to have in their offering statement says to their investors, I'm a value added investor. And one of the, once a, every venture capitalist says to their investors, I'm a value added investor. And one of the ways is I'm an active board member at every company. I feel that by being an observer Mm -hmm. on a company, you can have as much of a voice. And I learned early on that most venture capitalists in the early stages have 20%, 25%, and they really don't control the company. Uh, So why fight for board seats when it's just strictly an opportunity to have a conversation around the table? And you can do that just as well by being a board observer. Mm. And so co-investing with other VC firms has
0: worked out well for you throughout your whole career. Yes, absolutely. Excellent. What, what are some of the unique challenges that women uh, VCs still have in this industry?
1: I don't think they have. I mean, it's just the the only reason I was talking about this yesterday. The reason uh, I, I was given the figure 9% of venture backed companies are from women. The reason is maybe only 9% of the deals that come into the office are for women. Mm. Uh, uh, it's, it's not that people discriminate against women-backed companies. There just aren't that many applying for capital. In my area, primetime partners, my new activity, we are very open to women in particular. And a lot of the companies in our area are started by women. Are you getting uh, deal flow from the women though? Yeah, uh, We're getting, we have a disproportionate amount of investment in in women-backed companies. What do you
0: think about the U S VC industry? How is that different than the rest
1: of the world venture capital industry? Uh, I'm not up to date at the moment, but I would say that in the early days, I mean, Americans are risk takers and their entrepreneur spirit is
2: is kind of endemic in the in the chest of most people, many people in Europe, they really were not risk takers. And the and the, uh,
1: there's not as much technological development, which you need for a large part of venture business. But also they were very comfortable. They had more uh, long-term employment contracts, which gave them a, a driver, car and driver. Here, it's a more spunky entrepreneurial area and there wasn't a public market that you could get an exit in. So here we had all the right ingredients, uh, and no legislation. Uh, it was, it was playing in the way it went wild west. So you, you talk an awful lot about networking and the
0: importance of talking to people that you don't know about new ideas. What advice do you have for someone and that's half the population that are inherently introverted? I mean, is venture capital not a good profession for them or is there a way that you can get
1: past that? No, I think that you, I've never had that question asked, asked to me, but I think, I think if you're introverted, this is probably not a good area to be in. Okay. I think you've got to think externally. You have to be open to ideas uh and you have to be willing to explore things you have to have curiosity you shouldn't be in the venture business right and i also love
0: your interest in art in music and the theater um
1: what are some of the best concerts you've ever seen oh god i mean that's the i guess i'm sorry to be so obvious but the best concert i i guess in reflection that i ever went to was i was at the 1964 Beatles concert at uh, at Shea Stadium. Wow. Uh, I, you know, I've been to uh, uh, Jimmy Buffett concerts that I loved with all the Parrot Heads. Uh, I go I got it, and I'm going to try to, my mind's going to blank out. Uh, you, still, go, you still going to concerts? I know you're in the Hamptons right now.
0: And oh. I, I think I remember you talking about the Talk House, my favorite little spot in Amagansett. Wait, you, you
1: know that? That's amazing. Oh,
0: I've had, I've had one too many beers there. I have to be honest with you. And I've seen some good shows there over the years. What about you? Well, if
1: you notice in my book, I have a picture of the owner and I standing in front of it. I'm, I'm kind of a, uh, a token, uh, poster child for them since I'm probably the oldest person that goes there. Uh, I and- think I saw you once there cutting in front of
0: line when I had to wait there for an hour or two to get in.
1: Did you? uh, You absolutely would have seen me. Uh, Either, Lone Shark, Nancy, Nancy Atlas. Once in a while, I I haven't actually been fortunate enough to be there when Jimmy Buffett and when Paul McCartney have surprised everyone and popped in. Uh, But I, you know, the names actually the names of the groups are sometimes you know uh, very strange names that uh, I don't know where the hell they get. I used to like the Tree Torn Boys and something then. have you ever gotten on stage there and sang a song or two it's very funny you should ask that they have uh open mic um on thursday i do not get up uh, but someone did
2: a album about 20 years ago a woman named melissa
1: levis and she did uh melissa Melissa and the uh, Cowboys or Melissa and uh, something. And she had 20 people from Wall Street uh, record an album in the afternoon. That's really the only time I got up and we sang. We we were a group that she uh, she put on her album. Amazing. And you've seen Nancy Atlas, there are a bunch I bet. Yes, I do. I remember when she was only $10 and I was shocked the last time I was there, she's now 50. Which tells you her career has gotten more successful. Is it? Is it true that you're
0: really thinking about going to Burning Man? I am going. Yeah. For sure, Don. You got your
1: tickets? I've got my tickets. I've got my my tickets to go, and I got my tickets to the Berta Express, and I've got my my uh, goggles and my scarf and my fur coat. I'm I'm still. I haven't got my costume yet. Why, why are you going like, what attracts you to this? Cause it's there, just like why people climb Mount Everest, it's there. Uh, it's something I wanted to try. Uh, I've heard about it. I was going in 2019, I paid for going and they canceled. So when they started again, I said, I'm going to go I just, I'll, I'm going to be there only three days at the beginning. And, uh, uh you know, it's just, you might say curiosity. Uh, I just, it's, it's, it's that extremely different that I feel I'd like to see what it's
0: like. When you go to places like that, are, are you, hang, are, I want to say, I want to ask a question, but as I'm thinking through the question, I know it's stupid. I'm saying, are you sitting there by yourself, listening to music? Or are you interacting and being social and getting to
1: know people? And I think I know the answer. You have to interact. I mean, I don't think you can go and be an observer particularly there it's not acceptable is, is there
0: anything um um and i'm going on a limb but do you think your love of music and the arts has somehow helped you become a better investor or a better leader or even a better human being
1: i think it's given me a a uh, diversified persona. It's giving me, again, it goes back to what I said at the very beginning. I try everything. Uh, and, uh, you know, if I'll keep doing that as long as I can. And uh, if some, you know, I did the polar bear plunge two years ago on New Year's Day here. I don't know what the hell the temperature was in the ocean. <laughs> you got to be crazy, weather. Alan.
2: Yeah.
1: Well, I now I've done it. What'd you think? How'd you feel when you did it? Cold. (laughs) But, but, but afterwards you say, I did the polar bear plunge. But what else, what else do you want to do now that you haven't done because it's there? At the moment, I really don't have anything, uh, specific that I want to do. I don't have a, a bucket list. Uh, I've done so much, uh,
0: but i'm sure something else will pop up. So if some of the listeners to this podcast have some ideas
1: are you open to it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Well, now, I've, po- I've got a pretty full plate of activity, I'll have to say that. Speaking of a full plate,
0: how the heck did you get into politics? You're you're a busy guy. Why did you decide to get involved,
1: you know, years decades ago in politics? I hadn't been growing up because uh, early in my career cuz I didn't have the money and i didn't have the time. And when I started having the time, and I I dabbled slightly, but when I met Bill Clinton, that kind of got me excited. As uh, How did like, you, you meet him, and what got you excited about that? I met him at a party in East Hampton, uh, where he was a runner, and he was going to run the next day, and nobody else was going to run with him. And i was a runner so i said you know so i ran with him and i ran with him many years thereafter and uh from there uh, you know politics what, what, what was your first impression of, of bill
0: clinton then then I, I assumed this was even before he had decided he wanted to run for
1: president what was yeah. your impression of him i'd say he'll be president someday right after that run before the run why wow. was- He's a very dynamic guy. He's really, he's, he's as exciting today as he was then. Uh, He would have been, I would have made him president for life. Um, Who who are some other folks that you respect? You
0: know, maybe not as much as former president Clinton, but other, you know, folks in politics.
1: Uh, I'm going to pronounce his name incorrectly, but uh, this uh, Congressman Rash Rashman, okay. his name, who John Rashman, who I uh, hear all the time. Uh, I like what he has to say. I find him a very impressive guy. Uh, he speaks his mind. Uh, you can't help but like Liz Cheney, regardless of her of her po- policy or her party affiliation. But I like people who speak their mind. Uh, and I, it drives me crazy, the people today, who are deniers of things that are so obvious to me. Um, well, why? Why are they? Like, obviously, the country's
0: so divided. Um, but why do you think people are so oblivious and deny things that are so obvious, regardless of their political affiliation?
1: Uh, politics. <laughs> they want to get reelected and I, I i am so uh altruistic and so unrealistic so uh pollyanna-ish that i say if i were in that guys because i would forget about my career but i would i can't imagine anyone not being in favor of gun control i just can't i, I don't know how to conceive it abortion i can see political belief religious beliefs i, I happen to be in favor of, of having no, you know, no regulations about abortion and being open-minded about it. Uh, since I'm not a woman, and I think women have a real problem.
2: But in terms of gun control, I don't know how anyone could be against controlling
1: the use of firearms in this country. It's just, what's it gonna? What's it gonna take? Well, voting rights, another issue. I can't understand how someone wouldn't say everybody's entitled to vote. And make it easy as easy as you can to get someone to vote but uh there are people who don't vote with their conscience they vote with politics in mind do you do you think washington
0: can learn anything from your world of, of venture capital in other words can politicians somehow become more innovative and practical in terms of policy
1: making i hope they become innovative i uh, no i think that what we have, we're stuck with. And I, I, I've given up thinking that, you know, I remember writing a letter to Lindsey Graham when he and John McCain did something, I can't remember what it was, that I was so impressed by his willingness to be open about an idea. And a month later, he's, you know, was doing something that made no sense and he was just giving a political vote. Yeah. So,
0: what advice do you have for my seventy-six-year-old mother who still wants to work and she wants to live to be a hundred? What kind of philosophy should she embrace?
1: Go for it. I mean, uh, I think that uh, she's got, my theory, she's got another forty years to live. I don't know what her background is. She could start a new company. She could uh, get into politics. She could uh, probably a little late to go to medical school <laughs> or be a lawyer, but she could, you know, do something, a passion that she's always had. She could fulfill that. Uh, uh, she could certainly stay active as, you know, in terms of exercise, be, a, you know, explore the outdoors and find out what she's capable of doing, whether it's, snowshoeing or uh, skiing or or swimming or just walking and so uh, i'll
0: wrap it up but how excited are you about uh, uh primetime partners
1: i think we've got a we've found a great hole in the market uh which is you know we're not the only one there but uh, uh people don't realize that the millennials are not the fastest growing part of the population the over 60, the baby boomers, there'll be more baby boomers over 60 in 2030 than there will be people under 18. It's the fastest growing part of the population. They have the most money to spend and the most wisdom. Uh, they, and they are all going to need different things as they get older. So we are totally diversified in what we do, but we have one consumer, which is the person who's, aging. I don't know. I can't tell how you your age, but you may be approaching our consumer age uh, we, you know, we can't decide whether it's 50 or 55 or 60. I always say 60, but it's, I think it's under that live my
2: life with no red lights. I, you know, I go out in the rain without
1: an umbrella. I, uh, you know, I can make appointments in two cities in a day. I, on days i get invited to three events in an evening i try to figure out how to do it i did it last night as a matter of fact (laughs) Uh, the day before i made a round trip trip to chicago including being delayed six hours on the return uh got up the next day to do my running with my running coach uh so i think that i live an active life and unless I get run over by one of these bicycle delivery people who go 50 miles an hour on the streets, um, I think I have a good chance to live to 114. If I don't, I tell people, come to my funeral and laugh if you're still alive.
0: Well, I have a feeling Alan is going to outlive all of us and certainly have a lot more fun than the rest of us. If you enjoyed this episode and want to receive free episodes each week, please do subscribe at www.imperfectleaders.com. And if you're a student, we'd love to hear which icons you would like for us to interview next. Until next week, have a great week, guys.